Navigating the Storm, episode 12. What therapy is really like. Hi, welcome to today's episode. I'm Anna Knight. I'm a lover of musicals, a total book fiend, and I'm also a personal development coach. I help women and non-binary people survive the storms that life throws at them and come out the other side stronger and more them than they ever were before. On this podcast, I chat to people about their life experiences. I ask them about their stories, what they've learned, and the advice they have for people walking down the same path behind them. My guests aren't necessarily famous, although Dawn French is always welcome to pop on. But I'm here to have real conversations with people about the topics that matter to them. Today I'm talking to Rose Scott. Rose is a psychiatric nurse with over 40 years experience and she's also one of the most calming people I've ever met. If you're a member of Port in the Storm, our Facebook community, you might know her from our weekly live conversations where she's always bringing a bit of extra wisdom. During our chat, Rose and I will talk about the help that's out there for people at the moment, especially with the unique challenges that COVID-19 has caused. We also talk about how to look after ourselves as people in caring professions, and how to adjust when you need to be cared for, and you're just plain not used to it. Thank you for coming on, Rose. If you'd like to tell everyone listening a little bit about yourself. Oh, my goodness. Where do I start? <laughs> I'm Rose. I'm actually Mel's mum. I'm also a psychiatric nurse and have been for 45 years this year. Still waiting for my medal, but I'm never going to get one. I have a disability through ill health, so I've had also that to cope with. And I've been divorced twice and separated now. So I've had... Quite a lot of life experience. <laughs> Definitely. So obviously quite a long career in nursing then. Mm-hmm. Did you always know that you wanted to be a nurse? No, I wanted to be a vet. And I wanted to be a vet for a long time until I was talked out of it by the careers officer because at that time women didn't become vets. So that was my change of tack. Mm-hmm. And then I did start my career working in a children's nursery. But then as soon as I was able, I went into nursing. And how did you find your niche within nursing? How did you know that psychiatric nursing was for you? Hmm. Well, I saw the job advertised. Initially, I started as a nursing assistant, which there was then, which healthcare assistants now. And uh, I started as a nursing assistant and after a month applied for the nursing school. Mm-hmm. Because I enjoyed that first month, I suppose. It was very different. It was very challenging. I was told on my first day, if you're still here after three days, you'll be okay. And considering the ward that I started working on was 44 old ladies who were quite poorly. And at that particular time, I had diarrhea and vomiting. So it was quite a challenging first few days. I was going to say, it's impressive that you stayed them. Yeah, and them that's first what they kept days. telling me. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I've, so I've seen lots and lots of changes over the years. Lots of differences when I moved from Yorkshire up here 20 years ago. 
I actually initially felt as if I'd stepped back in time in the psychiatric service because medication that has not been used in Yorkshire for a long time was being used in South Shields. And also the services wasn't there that had been available in Yorkshire. Mm -hmm. So quite a difference in services based on... area. Area. But they've caught up. They've caught up very quickly. Mm. They have caught up. Yeah. Mm. And I know kind of a part of your role that you didn't touch on is that you do inspections for the CQC. So do you still find that there's that bit of a postcode lottery in terms of services around the country oh definitely i travel all over sometimes doing hospital inspections which are usually three to four days and also going into nursing homes and care homes on one day Mm -hmm. inspections obviously not in the last few months (laughs) but there's still differences in services in we did hospital inspections was three day and on one of the wards, which was a locked ward, there was a lot of control and restraint used. And again, it, I did feel as if I'd stepped back in time there because mm-hmm. some of the things wasn't correct, but they are now, let's put it that way, especially yeah. after the inspection. Good. <laughs> and so with your role that you do now, you're not on wards no, anymore, not, are you? I'm still classed as a psychiatric nurse because I still have my registration and I still have to pay to go to work. Because a lot of people don't realise that nurses have to pay a yearly fee mm-hmm. to be able to practice. And they have to prove that they've kept up to date, retrained, etc. with what we call revalidation. In the role that I'm doing at the moment, I work with primary care. So I deliver different types of therapies. I deliver counselling and I also deliver short-term CBT, which is cognitive behaviour therapy. And we deal with, our team deals with children up to elderly. But I don't see anyone usually under the age of 16. Mm-hmm. Quite novel having that lifespan services like mm. in a lot of places there's kind of a disconnect between children's mental health services and adults mental health services. Mm-hmm. Do you think it helps having one service that covers children all the way through to elderly patients? I think so because it's two separate teams but we're in the same building uh-huh. so it's the same service. I know a lot of staff have had to sort of like step up and actually start working with children. But mm-hmm. I didn't volunteer because I've done that bit many years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think I could or want to do it now. Mm-hmm. And over time, I think there's been a shift in how we think about mental health. Members of my family in older generations to me and who've had mental health problems, it's been very much, oh, you don't talk about it. You hide it almost because... There could be knock-on implications for your career, like your job prospects. Do you think the attitudes towards mental health things have changed? Have they gone far enough? Or I don't think they've gone far enough because you still get a lot of... We get a lot of clients... We, we don't call them patients, we call them clients. We get a lot of clients who was, well, I don't want my employer to know I'm having this problem, they're not being supportive. And we do have someone who can assist with that. We have an employment advisor that can work with employers and look at people's rights because their issues can be classed as a disability, but they don't because Mm -hmm. they don't want to be labelled. Yeah. And I think it must be quite scary being in that Mm. position of knowing you need help, but at the same time feeling like you've got to hide it from Mm. everyone. And it's not just with mental health. You know, I've had people who couldn't read and write because that was what happened in their life. Mm-hmm. They've never been able to learn. They 
have been able to function at work mm-hmm. until recently and then COVID happened, there was moved and that move entailed them filling forms in. Yeah. So issues like that as mm-hmm. well and that's affected their mental health. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that it's not just a separate thing. These all do kind of come together. Mm. So your education background can impact on it. Your physical health can impact on your mental health as well. Have you seen a change in what people are needing from you as a service in 2020 with COVID-19? Oh, definitely. I mean, we've had, I don't think just in 2020, last year, was it Manchester last year? We had a lot of people who referred themselves because they had post-traumatic stress because a lot of people from the northeast attended that concert mm-hmm. in Manchester. And then obviously with COVID, we've now been commissioned. We've won a tender with the commissioners to do a package of bereavement work for mm-hmm. people who've been affected by COVID, either that they've lost somebody and obviously the big impact is they've not been with that person mm-hmm. at the end and they've not been able to sit with them and also give them the funeral that they Mm -hmm. planned or deserved. Yeah, those parts of it, they feel like almost essential to what we think of as the Mm. grieving process. If you have the moment where you can say goodbye and you have the funeral where you come together in your grief. Mm. And I imagine it must be really hard for people who've been denied that this year. Definitely. I've I've had quite a few people who've lost somebody and they're angry because they couldn't be there and they're also angry because that person didn't get the funeral that Mm -hmm. they'd wanted to have. Yeah, one of my former colleagues had posted online that that had happened to them, they'd lost someone very close to them, they'd had the funeral and they'd been able to get an amount of close family together under like Mm. what was allowed but because they were from separate households they felt it was really disrupted because they couldn't hug each other and they couldn't give that physical comfort and I think that when I read her post that was an aspect I'd never even considered before that it's not just about the a small funeral it's even affecting how that funeral happens Mm. and I mean we transferred over to telephone therapy and I was dreading it but I must say it appears and the figures show that it's worked it's worked really well But there's so many times we're not supposed to hug people. There is occasions when that person deserves a hug. And I always say to them, I'm not supposed to do this, but (laughs) is it okay to have a hug? You know, and oh my God, yes, usually, you Mm -hmm. know. And I even have to say it over the phone. I said to one of the people that I speak to, I do feel for them and their issues have increased since I've been talking to them because of other Mm -hmm. events that have gone on in their life and... They're only young and I just want to give them a hug. And I told them that and they said, oh, that's a really nice thought. Thank you. And I think Mm -hmm. that just helps sometimes just saying that. Yeah, it's that human connection side Mm. of it. Like a lot of the people I coach, when they're telling me all about their past and what's gone Mm. on for them, I think one of the most validating moments is when I kind of say to them, like, yeah, that sucks. You didn't deserve that. And I think just hearing it from someone else, that expression of wanting to offer comfort because it's not a fair situation, it's not a good situation. I think for some people, they just have that. 
like unlock somewhere they're like oh yeah okay someone else sees this it's not yeah. just in my head that i've built it up yeah and i think what else i've come across is a lot of people who are isolated now have mental health issues mm-hmm. a lot of people who have been shielding so they've not seen anybody obviously just people who've been bringing things at a distance so they've been totally alone mm-hmm. a lot of people have had their little dogs with them or their cats and they've found them really good company but yeah, I think I'm getting a lot. I mean, out of five people today, two of them have been shielding and mm-hmm. the reason they've come is because of the coronavirus. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and in my group as well, there's been a lot of conversation with single mums as well mm-hmm. who've been saying that they might no longer be with their partner for whatever reason, but because they've been doing that co-parenting, their ex-husband or ex-boyfriend... Is actually the adult they've had most contact with and it's been really hard for them as well in terms of maintaining boundaries that they've set because when that person's the only adult you see in your day Mm. you're like oh my god I need someone to talk to yeah and I've been really struck by like you say how that isolation has really affected just such a wide range of people definitely people who have been furloughed and then they've gone back and they've been made redundant and They've lost their employment. Yeah. Now they're struggling on benefits, if they can get them. Yeah, like, Mm. I think there's a lot of people out there who are going through a really tough time. Mm. And I wanted to ask, because obviously as a mental health practitioner, you must hear a lot of these stories that are really kind of heartbreaking, like, full of emotion. Definitely. How do you look after yourself so that that's not having too much of a toll on you? I think it's just being very aware. With me working part-time, I see five people two days a week and four on the other day. So it takes a lot of time. And I find, especially in this role, with this team, thankfully, I would say in the 45 years of working in mental health, I've got the best manager Mm -hmm. who is so supportive and always makes sure that we're okay. Mm-hmm. And as a team for peer support, the team is really brilliant. Mm-hmm. Quite often, I can just spend 10 minutes on the phone with another member of the team who wants support with something or because they're feeling a bit overwhelmed and that. Not that long ago, I felt quite overwhelmed because a lot of people who I was talking to, it was bereavement issues mm-hmm. and it was getting to me. But talking it through with people, we get really good supervision. All my supervisors are brilliant. So Yeah, so having that support, it sounds like both from the people who are managing you, but also the people at the same level as you yeah, who colleagues. are going through the same yeah. thing. And we've got a WhatsApp group, colleagues, you know, peers. None of the managers are in it, I noticed, and they've been invited. And we've also got a group on Messenger. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you quite often get little questions on there. Does anybody know if we can offer a service for this or someone wanting a couple's counselling which Mm -hmm. we don't offer you know somebody was able to signpost them to the right service Mm -hmm. and things like that yeah which I think is really helpful because when you have teams like yours yeah you offer a range of therapies but you can't be Mm. all things to all people Mm. so um I was talking a couple of episodes with Steph and she was saying like a big part of what she does is signpost people going I'm not the one to help you but these and we are. do that quite often. People have got to be 
you know, when they refer themselves and they don't fully realise what it entails. Mm -hmm. And when you have that first session or the first assessment and you're going through what it will or could be happening, it's like, oh, I didn't think it was going to be like this. Mm -hmm. Like in CBT, you set tasks, but you set tasks with that person. And I'd never use the word homework because I've had people actually scream at me and sort of like say, do you not think I did enough homework at school? Mm -hmm. But part of CBT is doing work at home. Yeah, like I think it's the same with all kind of therapeutic things Mm. is there are very few therapies where you can go and do an hour a week and Mm. have it spread out to the rest of your life. Like Mm -hmm. a a lot of the time it's the work you do outside of the sessions that you then come and talk about again. And and Mm. coaching definitely works the same, that they go away, try something feedback and we say well did that work was that the right strategy for that moment what else could you have done and we explore all those options Mm. but yeah it's not a case of chatting to someone for an hour and everything magically gets better and I think that's the difficulty with CBT is you do set a lot of tasks and I sometimes do put the phone down on people and think oh they're doing really well and they've done this and they've done that and then that little doubt creeps in and thinks is this just lip service? Are they just saying they've done this? Mm-hmm. But I've had some good results. Yeah. And they've been quite happy to be discharged. And they've not come back up to now. So. <laughs> Which is always a good sign. Yeah. Yeah. But we do get people come back two, three, four times and they need therapy each time. Yeah. And someone once described it to me as if you imagine like all your experiences as a jigsaw, mm. when you've got that that traumatic memory, that that event that is still affecting you in the future. It's like the jigsaw piece has been put in upside down and back to front and it Mm. doesn't fit. And every time you look at the jigsaw, you go, oh, that bit, that is the problem. But sometimes once you've sorted one bit out, like you say, you just need a top up because you didn't quite notice that these three bits weren't quite in line either because there was the big thing. And then once you've resolved that a bit, you go, oh, I didn't even notice I had those three things. I always say I've had a lot of therapy, a lot of coaching in my life, but I still keep engaging in that process because Mm. there's always stuff going on. There's always room for a top up for a new skill. Well, it's like within psychiatry, within mental health, with me. Yeah, I've been doing it for a long time. I have got experience, but I still learn something new every day. Mm -hmm. And I have to have top ups. Yeah. You know yeah, and I think for me, that's a really healthy part of the process. Mm. I always worry when people are like, no, I know everything. There's nothing for me to work on because then I'm thinking, oh, okay, maybe though, is there some big blind spot you're ignoring? Yeah. Mm. There's things that you know you don't know, but there's also things you don't know you don't know, if that mm. makes sense. Yes. And sometimes those are the things that I'm like, oh, what's going on in that shadowy corner of your mind? On the surface, like you say, it can seem okay, but sometimes it's those deeper things that are rumbling away it's those little boxes what people have hidden away mm-hmm. and someone's triggered it yeah definitely so to shift you on to a, a slightly different topic now mm-hmm. you are the mum of our wonderful producer mel this is the other thing that i've been thinking about a lot because obviously as parents you're in the nurturing role Mm-hmm. And as a nurse, you're in that nurturing role. So what is it like as your kids get older and become adults and the kind of the balance of who supports who starts to shift? That's been difficult, especially recently, since I've separated from my other half, or was other half, ex-other half. 
and the issues what I had and how difficult it was, especially when coronavirus arrived. Both yourself and Mel and Mel's brother, they had to support me a lot. And I found that very difficult, accepting that support. The times I've rung up and I've been upset and Mel's been away and she said, but you know we're always here for you. And I think I've said it to her a couple of times, but that's the wrong way around because mm-hmm. I'm your mum. But now I realise that it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's that shift, isn't it? And I think... I think I found that with my older siblings as well of because I'm the youngest by a long way. So mm. there's 11 years between me and my brother, I think 16 or 17 between me and my sister and then mm. 18 between me and my brother. I think for the longest time they saw me as the, baby. the little sibling. Mm. So I think my middle brother and my sister have adjusted quicker because we've had a lot more contact. Yeah. But I can never remember my eldest brother living at home. I have no concept of what that's like. And I think it's the same for him, that he's always put me in that little girl box in his head. And last year I did some work as a speech therapist for his school. And I think he had that kind of adjusting period of going, oh, hang on, not the little one anymore, not the one I have to look after, actually... Like, I do think it does take a big mental shift to go, okay, this has changed and that's actually okay. Because when you're in that nurturing role, Mm. I know for the people that I try and mother, it's really difficult when you start then. It is, it's difficult. And I think it was, the big thing was when I was ill in hospital, the first, well, no, the second time actually, but the first time up here and I was in for a long time. Mel nearly killed herself by visiting me every day. I think she mentioned it before when you Mm -hmm. spoke to her. And again, that was her supporting me. And then especially when I came out, I would sit there and tell everybody, my two kids are my heroes because if it wasn't for them, when I was poorly, I wouldn't be here Mm -hmm. because they did everything for me. They supported me so well, apart from when they deserted me to America. (laughs) Um, They went on holiday like shameless children. Yeah. But they organised that I had support, don't get me wrong, but still, <laughs> the little deserted me. Um, <laughs> With the no, giant dog that you was just my adopted. <laughs> and I've always said from that day I would do anything for them to pay them back, mm-hmm. so to speak, because they were so supportive at that time. Yeah. Well, my coaching brain is going, like, you know, you don't need to pay them back, right? <laughs> I know I don't need to pay them back, but in my way, that's how I'm explaining it. Mm-hmm. It's... I don't have to pay them back. I just have to appreciate them. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I think it's that role thing, isn't it, of sometimes it can feel really easy to give, but to receive can actually feel quite squirmy and uncomfortable. It brings up all those sorts of, actually, I shouldn't. And Well, it goes back to the person that everybody comes to, friends, family or whatever, for advice, support, loans, whatever. You know, you can all come to me, but... Sometimes it's, and then it's really difficult for me to go to somebody else Mm -hmm. and ask for support in any way. It is difficult. Mel has said that even growing up, there were all these periods where she'd come in from college and you'd have had one of her friends over on the sofa spilling their life history, (laughs) who then left and you were were like, oh, he was here. We had a good long chat for three hours and Mel's like, what? Yeah, they didn't come to see you, Mel. They came to see me (laughs) because at that time I was the cool mum. 
I suppose I was doing therapy then as well, in a way. Yeah. Like, I do wonder, like, I find that with a lot of my friends is that it's when you're in that coaching or therapy, like, sometimes when people start unloading to you, you just naturally slip into yeah, those patterns. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I try and view it as a thing of shows how much they trust me that mm. I'm doing that. But yeah, I do wonder sometimes if back in my past, being that person made it harder for me to put in boundaries as well because I was like if you're always that person and then you're not okay it feels even worse to then be like no I can't be that person for you right now Mm. when I first started being coached they do this test it's called the power types test it's something I do with my coaches now but it looks at where you are in all your power types how easy is it for you to get into queen mode? How easy is it for you to get into warrioress mode and mother mode? And mm. I had um, my queen, who's the boundary setting and strong decision making and saying no when you need to, was 19 out of 100. And my mother was like up in the high 70s. That's probably me as well. Yeah, yeah. and it was just, it was really funny looking at how it played out in my life. Because it's not about saying, going completely the other way and being like, I'm not going to mother anyone, I'm not going to give to anyone. It's about working out who you're going to do that to. There's a really cool tool we do. And the first time I did that, I was like, oh my God, it's overflowing. And so as part of the process, you're like, well, actually, you don't need to be someone I'd make myself not okay for. You can be someone I'll support if I'm okay. And then I'd cleared out kind of that space. Now, there was only like two people there left. And I was like oh, well, this is terrifying in a whole different way. Like, it always really strikes me that there's so many of us out there who are caring, nurturing people, but what we end up doing is trying to nurture everyone. Mm. And And I say it to patients as well, especially after my surgery and what happened. I went back to work, but I was still really angry. Mm -hmm. And I had therapy. I had counselling, then I had some CBT. It was the best thing I ever did Mm -hmm. because I needed it at the time. And I'm not... You know, and as I say to my clients, I'm not ashamed of that. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with it. And all therapists need a therapist. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And it's really interesting because I was having a chat with someone the other day who was saying the idea of you don't trust a skinny chef goes that you trust a healthy doctor. And they were then saying, well, so a therapist should never have mental health issues. And I really look at it as the other way around, is that actually I think the experiences I've had in my life is what makes me a good coach because I've Mm. got that empathy. And Mm. like you say, you can be like, well, I did it. That's it, yeah. And I don't mind sharing that with people. You know, it was the best thing that I could have done at the time. Mm -hmm. I needed it. Yes, I'd managed for so long and I'd gone back to work, but it was my manager at the time. And she said, you're still really angry about this. And I went, oh, yeah. And I knew I was. I was angry Mm -hmm. at me. I was angry at everybody else. Yeah. She suggested it, and I thought, well, we'll give it a try. Got me out of work for an extra hour as well. (laughs) I thought that when I started doing the going to the domestic abuse support group, I had a little moment of where it gets me out of work for an hour every Wednesday morning. Yeah. I'll do it, fine. And like you say, at the time, it was the best thing I could have done Mm. because you can process things up to a point yourself, even when you are Mm. a nurse, there's a certain point you can take yourself to, but having that someone else hold the space for you Mm. lets you open up in a deeper way sometimes. Yeah, because I think, well, especially in the second lot, in the CBT, the CBT therapist that I saw, 
got me to read the book on the Freedom Program, mm-hmm. which opened my eyes as to what I'd put up with previously and what I was putting up with. And I've been able to share that, not share it on a personal level with people, but I've been able to recommend the book and mm-hmm. pointers and things like that. So my therapy helped me to deliver. Yeah other parts of my therapy yeah definitely and I find that with coaching all the time that because Mm. I've lived some of these things I can point people in certain directions Mm. and I can it's almost like speak the lingo sometimes I think like the freedom program gives you these really concrete ways to talk about different types of abuse and when Mm. you've got that that you can put it across so clearly to someone who's going through the same thing I think it helps them understand it as well yeah definitely And plus it makes it really easy to Google because they can then go out and search. That's true. So, to round up, if there's anyone out there listening thinking, I could really use some mental health stuff, Mm -hmm. is there anything you'd advise them, anything you'd want to let them know? I think it's don't be scared to ask for support. Look for it. The team I work for has a website on the internet. Most areas, the primary care teams have websites Mm -hmm. and you can do everything online. You can fill in a referral online. You can do an assessment online. You know, because a lot of people don't like talking about their problems initially Mm -hmm. until they feel more comfortable. And it is easy to get it. It is out there. It annoys me when you hear on the news there isn't a service. There are services out there, Mm -hmm. whether it's... The NHS, Mind, or other services, they are available. You know, it's free. <laughs> yeah. You're, it's only going to take a little bit of your time up. And I often say to people, you know, we give six sessions. So in theory, that's an hour a week. So it's six hours out of your life that will help. Uh-huh. You know, it may help and you may not need any more for it, you know, for the rest yeah. of your life. Look at it that way. It's not a lot. Yeah. I think you're right, though, that you build it up in your head, don't you? Like, Mm. it feels like this massive, oh, my God, I have to get to breaking point before I reach out. And I talk a lot on my blog about you don't need to wait until you're at rock bottom to reach out. If you spot the pattern on the way down, Mm. like, that's a great time to reach out. Because there's no level of good enough or bad enough that your issues have to be to warrant support if Mm. it's impacting you. Definitely. I mean, our team offers, and we're what they call an IAP team, and there's IAP teams all over the country, and we offer what we call short, sharp therapy, and we're supposed to see people on the lower scale of issues. Mm -hmm. So those that just starting with anxiety, just starting with depression or anything else. Unfortunately, we don't often get that. Mm -hmm. We get the more severe cases, but we are open to referrals for people who have a mild, if there is such a thing as a mild anxiety or a mild depression, where things are just starting to build up and the coping, but there's still an issue. Yeah. Yeah. The help is there. So after chatting to Rose, I was reminded of a very specific point in my life. I had some therapy in my mid-twenties to help me process my health challenges and the impact that it was all having on my life. And I remember that I put off getting help for a really long time because I felt like as a grown-up I should have it all under control. That's what functional adults do, right? 
What I've learned since then is that getting support when you're struggling actually isn't a sign that you're not able to adult properly or that you're failing at life. It's quite a courageous step towards change. If I'd have known back then that the coaches and therapists I'd go on to work with would be non-judgmental and yeah, bring up some confronting emotions, but ultimately take me through the bad times into something more joyful, I think I'd have signed up so much earlier than I did. So if you're sat out there wondering if you'd benefit from some kind of therapy, counselling or coaching, please reach out to someone. As Rose said, the support is out there for you. Next week, we'll be talking to Amy Gladding, a teacher, mum and photographer. We'll chat about work-life balance and how to get creative balance as a mum. And we're also going to have a conversation about how comparing our challenges can set us up for shame and different ways that we can turn that cycle around. See you next time. Navigating the Storm is hosted by Anna Knight and produced by Anna Knight and Mel Robinson. Mm-hmm.